The time is now. Volume 2, Episode 33. This is Employment Law Now, and I am Mike Schmidt, your host, the Vice Chair of Labor and Employment here at Cozen O'Connor. We are inching so much closer to the unofficial start of the summer. We are just days away to what most people believe uh, is the best season of all of them. Summer lovin' had me a blast Summer lovin' happened so fast Met a girl crazy for me Met a boy cute as can be Summer days drifted away All those up, all those summer nights So you are welcome for giving you something to listen to uh, as you start this Memorial Day weekend holiday. You've finished going through your emails. You have finished with the piles on your desk. You're heading out for a terrific three-day long weekend. Maybe you're going out for a run. Maybe you'll sit at the beach, sit at the pool, go for a bike ride. But here I'm now giving you something to spend a few minutes listening to, some entertainment, and yet some education. Well, I got some really great feedback on our last episode, which was episode 32, back on May 10th of 2018. That was the first part of a two-part bonus series on the impact of marijuana on employers. Part two is going to be coming in two weeks. Don't get all confused that today is not part two. That will be coming uh, in about two weeks, part two of that series. But I wanted to focus on, as I said, we are getting close to the hot season, the hot summer season. I wanted to focus on two very hot trending now segments. The first one, and this has really been a heck of a week, the first one has to do with the big Supreme Court decision that came out just this week. You know, you have heard me say this by now, and for those who have heard me speak or you've listened to enough of these podcast episodes, you know that I have a couple of real strong principles when it comes to employment law. One of the big ones is is that companies, employers, should not just make employment decisions off the seat of their pants. Um, being, they shouldn't be trigger happy when they're making decisions having to do with their employees. They shouldn't be making decisions just because, well, everybody else does it. Everyone else in my industry, other companies that I talk to, they're doing it this way. That's not why employers should be making employment-related decisions. Instead, whichever way you go on the particular issue, you should be considering and analyzing what makes sense for your particular business, for the unique interests that your particular business has. So that's really a common denominator uh, for this first Trending Now segment. 
Um, we've been watching this for a while, and as I said, the Supreme Court this past Monday, May 21st, issued a long-awaited decision on class action waivers. We've been waiting for it, we've been waiting for it, um, and we've been talking about it, we've been tweeting about it, we've been reading about it and writing about it. Um, certainly for the last six years, as it has become a tremendous issue, um, but more recently, since this past October 2017, when the Supreme Court heard oral arguments on this particular case, but the Supreme Court this past Monday finally settled an issue that largely favors employers, but it also requires, I think, businesses to carefully consider their unique interests to determine whether to create or modify an employee arbitration program. So specifically, um, this past Monday, the Supreme Court ruled pretty much along party lines, five justices to four, that class action waivers in an arbitration agreement do not violate the National Labor Relations Act, the NLRA, and instead that the Federal Arbitration Act requires that courts enforce such class action waivers. In doing so, uh, over a fairly vigorous dissent by uh, Justice Ginsburg, the majority really rejected expressly various arguments that have been relied upon by the National Labor Relations Board for the past six years and certain lower courts that have previously found waivers to violate provisions in the National Labor Relations Act that has given the right to employees to engage in protected concerted activity. The primary argument here, and we've talked about that notion of protected concerted activity, but the notion was or has been that um, the right to engage in protected concerted activity means that we can act with our co-workers, we can act collectively to try to enforce our rights. And so by denying individuals the right to go to court or even to arbitration collectively with a group, a class action, a collective action violates that protected concerted activity right that is given under the National Labor Relations Act. The Supreme Court just rejected that. The Supreme Court has now held that the well-established federal policy favoring arbitration supports the use of class action waivers and further that there is nothing in the NLRA to suggest that Congress expressly intended to foreclose the resolution of wage and hour issues in particular through individual only arbitration. Again, remember, let's take a step back. For those um, who have not really been following the issue so much, it is this. Many businesses out there have been requiring their employees to resolve any and all disputes through arbitration as opposed to going to court. But the wrinkle is they've also included in many uh, of these agreements a class action waiver that you waive your right by signing this agreement, you waive your right to proceed in resolving your dispute collectively as a class action, as a collective action with other employees, with other plaintiffs. Instead, you have to seek your remedies on an individual basis. And that's been the big rub here. From the employer side, they've gotten a little bit tired of all of these big class actions, all of these collective actions, where they're forced to spend money and the employee attorneys have such significant leverage in extracting early settlements. Um, because of this fear that we're going to have liability that is exponentially larger when you're dealing with multiples of plaintiffs and multiples of employees. 
On the other hand, the argument from the employee side has been, you know, look, many times there is perhaps minimal damages for one particular uh, individual, and so the only way we're going to be able to prevent violations of these laws in some, uh, some occasions is by having groups of employees band together and fight to protect their rights against the companies who are abusing these employees, either through wage and hour violations or some other employment law violation, whether it's age discrimination, whether it's gender pay. So there have been a lot of arguments on both sides. Uh, six years ago, the National Labor Relations Board really took the position for the first time uh, that class action waivers violate the National Labor Relations Act. They were alone in that position for a good number of years until recently, a couple of years ago, some lower courts, as I said before, um, started agreeing with that position. And it was then up to the United States Supreme Court to resolve the dispute, which is what they did just this week. So this is another test for employers, in my view, because on the surface, hey, it seems like it's a pro-employer, pro-business ruling, and I guess it, for the most part, is. The Supreme Court is telling you that you can limit the rights of your employees to pursue their rights collectively. Isn't that a big win? Isn't that something that you now want to go run and do? Let's start entering into arbitration agreements, and let's put class action waivers in there. Well, I would say not so fast. I'm not telling you not to, but I'm not telling you to go ahead and do that just because it seems to be an easy pro-employer victory. Sure, the benefits are obvious now, and I just mentioned them. Without beating a dead horse, you are now likely to limit your exposure to damages for a big class, a big collective group. Maybe in some cases, you're even deterring some employee law firms out there from bringing the case against you in the first place, knowing that they have to pursue this uh, on an individual basis as opposed to on behalf of a class or a collective group. But I would also submit to you that there are four caveats here that should make you at least take the, uh, the foot off the gas pedal just a little bit and think about whether this is something that makes sense and is something that's going to bring you as much uh, in the way of benefits as you think. So caveat number one, this decision really does not have any tremendous impact for largely un uh, unionized facilities. So that if your workplace is mostly unionized, uh, in order to impose a mandatory arbitration program, and certainly one that has a class action waiver, you're going to have to go through collective bargaining. You're not necessarily just going to have a union agreeing to this, and it's certainly not something you can necessarily uh, impose unilaterally. So for those of you who have large unionized populations, if not completely, um, this decision may not impact you uh, as significantly as you think. Caveat number two, you're not completely eliminating the right or eliminating the likelihood that you could be the subject of a class or a collective action because remember, nothing you put in these agreements can stop a government agency from proceeding um, by class action or collective action. So if somebody makes a complaint, brings a, an administrative charge before the EEOC or the Department of Labor, there's nothing preventing those agencies from pursuing a class action or a collective action simply because you have a private agreement with one or more of your employees. Caveat number three, uh, and this is in some respects a public relations issue, um, but also still a legal issue, and that is 
don't forget this Me Too era that we're in right now and, and the big news that we continue to hear when it comes to sexual harassment claims. There is a tremendous public outcry against companies who are using confidentiality agreements when it comes to sexual harassment claims, but also mandatory arbitration provisions when it comes to sexual harassment claims. So much so that at the end of 2017, you may know that Congress on the federal level introduced legislation. It's called the Ending Forced Arbitration of Sex Harassment Act of 2017. A little bit of a misnomer by having sexual harassment in the title because it's meant to cover sexual harassment and sexual discrimination. But the point of it is that this legislation seeks to ban all use of mandatory arbitration programs for sexual harassment and sexual discrimination claims. We'll see how that makes its way through Congress if it ultimately gets passed. It's had a lot of support just this past February 2018. In somewhat of an unprecedented move, all 50 attorneys general sent a letter to Congress urging Congress to enact this legislation. So there is this public outcry, and even without legislation, even without this bill being passed, you're having companies be being proactive on this front largely I think because of public relations issues so companies like Uber and Lyft and Microsoft have already announced publicly that they are not going to impose mandatory arbitration programs on their employees who uh, assert sexual harassment and gender-based discrimination claims so it may be hard for your company uh, from a public relations standpoint to roll out a, a program, uh, an arbitration program that has class action waivers for sexual harassment and sex-based discrimination claims, but it will certainly be even harder to do so if and when um, that kind of legislation passes uh, either on the federal level or on the state and local level in some jurisdictions. Caveat number four and I put this in the be careful what you wish for bucket. Again, let's remember what we're talking about here. An arbitration program with a class action waiver, you are now forcing multiple individuals who may have the same or similar claims to seek redress for their claims in their own individual arbitrations. They can't do it in one arbitration on behalf of multiple similarly situated people Instead of one arbitration with 100 claimants, you now have to have 100 separate individual arbitrations. Is that really what your company wants? Now, as I said a few moments ago, having an arbitration program with a class action waiver may act as a deterrent to some employee-side law firms uh, who would be reluctant to take on a case if they can only do so on behalf of one claimant. But there certainly are law firms out there who represent employees. I know several of them who have the resources, who have the wherewithal, and who are sufficiently up in arms over this issue, and they have said, you know what, companies, if you're going to force these class action waivers on us, we will file our 100 arbitrations. We'll file our 500 separate arbitrations. So as a company, is that really what you want? Do you really want to be spending the time and money defending 100 different arbitrations before 100 different arbitrators in multiple jurisdictions? So again, the takeaway here is not necessarily to tell you you should definitely do these arbitration programs and have the class action waivers in them. 
The takeaway here is not to tell you you definitely shouldn't. It doesn't make sense to do it. The takeaway here, like everything else I tend to talk about, is look at your business. Look at the types of cases that you tend to have. Do you tend to have claims that are susceptible to class and collective actions? Or do you tend to just have employment claims where it's involving only a single individual plaintiff? What kind of cases are you seeing? What's your stomach for defending multiple, multiple arbitrations in different jurisdictions? So give some consideration to all of these. Obviously, there's a benefit to this decision. Most would agree that this was a pro-employer, pro-business decision by the United States Supreme Court. But there's always the flip side. There are caveats. There are potential downsides to having an arbitration program. Just give some thought to it before deciding either way. And if you've decided to go forward with an arbitration program and a class action waiver, you obviously want to make sure that it's drafted appropriately and has the right bells and whistles to maximize its enforceability. So that is um, the first trending now issue. It's, uh, it's going to be interesting to watch uh, as developments play out. It's going to be interesting to see uh, over the next few weeks, next few months, just anecdotally, I guess, how many companies run to develop uh, arbitration programs and uh, that have class action waivers. I suspect that you're going to have um, a significant number of companies creating these programs for their employees. Um, but again, like I said a moment ago, there are ways of going about it. It's not necessarily an all-or-nothing proposition either. Maybe you're going to create an arbitration program um, for some claims, while other claims can be resolved through the court system. Think about your company. Think about your unique company interests, and then make a decision on what you want to do. So our second trending now topic um, is a real interesting one and uh, it's so big that I'm uh, having a special guest join me to talk a little bit about this today you know I always talk about the proliferation of certain kinds of lawsuits we talk ad nauseum about how many wage and hour lawsuits continue to get filed and litigated um, around the country well there is another type of lawsuit that is really picking up steam in that uh, as well and that is the website accessibility lawsuits, website accessibility lawsuits. Most people have an understanding um, that the Americans with Disabilities Act, particularly Title I, prohibits employment discrimination against disabled individuals, right? Most people understand that. But most people also don't necessarily know that there are other titles uh, under the Americans with Disabilities Act um, that could cause some serious paying for companies on the wrong end of these lawsuits. And that has to do with website accessibility. The Americans with Disabilities Act, remember, was enacted in 1990, really before websites even came about. Yet courts have interpreted this term public accommodation. Public accommodation, which is something that is subject uh, to regulation under the ADA, public accommodations cannot discriminate in their terms of use and services that are offered to the general public cannot discriminate against disabled individuals and courts have interpreted this term public accommodation to include internet companies and their websites thus requiring in many jurisdictions probably most jurisdictions the same accessibility for disabled individuals who use these company websites just as you have uh, obligations um, 
when it comes to physical barriers such as building ramps leading to your uh, doors and certain ingress and e egress requirements uh, for folks in wheelchairs. To give you some statistics to highlight the point a little bit, and this is from a recent study that I saw, for the full year ending uh, December 2017, there were more than 800 federal lawsuits filed alleging some website was inaccessible to disabled individuals. Folks who had trouble hearing, blind individuals, and other um, disabilities. New York and Florida, like in the uh, wage and hour front, led the way with more than half of those federal lawsuits, but state courts have gotten into the act as well. There were more than 100 website accessibility cases filed in California alone, um, and other states, as I said, have gotten into the act um, where people have been filing suits left and right claiming that certain websites are inaccessible to disabled individuals. So I wanted to bring this to your attention. Some of you may not have heard of any of this. This may be a new concept to you completely. Some of you may have heard something about it, but they're not sure. You're not sure what it really means, or maybe it's one of those areas where you think, eh, I don't have to worry about it. It's never going to be a problem for my company. Well, it is important enough that I wanted to bring in uh, an expert to talk to you about this website accessibility issue. Scott Trachtenberg has a company. He is the CEO of a company called ADA Site Compliance. Nothing too fancy-schmancy about it, but the name of the company says it all. Scott is a technology entrepreneur who has a passion for starting and growing businesses. He is a true leader of leaders, as he's been called. Um, in fact, he was named the top entrepreneur of the year recently by Business Leader Magazine based on his proven leadership from concept into startup through growth and finally to exit. Scott has a passion for technology and how it can be utilized for improving the lives of those with uh, alternative learning styles and distinct accessibility needs. And as I said, uh, he started this company called ADA Site Compliance, where he deals 100% of the time with website accessibility issues. I think you will find the, uh, the story prompting uh, his starting the company very interesting, and I think you will find what he has to say about website accessibility cases and what your company should be thinking about also very interesting. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. So what is the nature of your business and how did you get started with this particular business? We help businesses and entities ensure that their websites are compliant with the Americans with Disabilities Act. And uh, I'm sure that we'll go into that uh, much deeper as we're moving forward. Um, and uh, I landed in the space um, due to uh, receiving a demand letter. So uh, about four years ago, I was sitting at my desk and was served with papers and <laughs> reviewed them. And, and it was all about our website not being compliant with the Americans with Disabilities Act. And honestly, I had never heard of website compliance and at first actually thought that it was maybe a, a joke. Maybe somebody was, uh, a friend was pranking me uh, and I did a quick Google search and uh, there, the, there was that uh-oh moment uh, where I realized that I had a real issue and I contacted a few friends who were attorneys and they had never heard of it and uh, they told me that they would dig in a little bit and get back to me and got calls from both the next day saying you know, that I had an issue and that they really couldn't help me because they didn't know anything about it, nor did anybody at their firms. Uh, and uh, that, that began uh, my entree into website compliance. So the business is born from that. 
the business was born from, uh, I guess, you know, as, as people often say to me, I, I made lemonade out, out of lemons. Uh, absolutely. That's, that's amazing. So you were actually being sued for your own business website, and uh, that's what got you starting uh, your own business doing this for other companies. Yeah, you know, I... I I was sort of on an island when it happened. I was uh, in the very early wave of litigation, and there was very little help out there. Uh, So I had to find my way through it with our website developer. And uh, going through that process, uh, I saw that there could be an opportunity. And as an entrepreneur, I'm always looking at business opportunities and have a million different ideas going through my head. Uh, But this one sort of stuck. Um, There were nights where I'd climb into bed and, and, and be lying there thinking about uh, this business and the opportunity to help others. And uh, what really sparked it was uh, other friends and business associates coming to me and uh, and they had a thirst for knowledge. They wanted to know more about it and, and how could they make their website compliant and accessible and, uh, you know, on one side to, you know, help to mitigate the chances of being sued, but on the other side, you know, how could they uh, help, you know, the, the general public and those with disabilities and could it actually be an additional revenue stream was a question that I often received and and that's how I looked at it um, so when I was sued or when I received the demand letter uh, first 48 hours you know I was not happy that it occurred uh, but then as I got a little more educated uh, I realized you know a, it's the right thing to do, and, and B, I actually began to look at it as, as an opportunity, and that's you know sort of how I rationalized it, was that there's an additional revenue stream there of, you know call it 5% of the population that was unable to place orders through my website. Um, so you know I, I, I then began to look at it as a marketing opportunity. Sure, and that, I guess, differentiates you know, the entrepreneur like you and the rest of us. Most of us will just get into bed at night and, and you know, think of what's, uh, what's to watch on Netflix. You're getting into bed and you're thinking about website accessibility. Uh, it's, it's amazing. So let's actually get to the non-legalese basics. I like to talk about these kind of subjects, um, assuming that we're not lawyers and we're not talking to lawyers. So for a layperson who's listening to this, what exactly does website compliance mean? So the basics of how someone with a disability would use a website, and, and there's, there's multiple ways. But So let's, let's take, for instance, somebody that's unable to use a mouse um, and or does not use a mouse. So someone that has a physical disability that uh, therefore they, they are unable, unable to use a mouse or uh, someone who's blind or severely sight impaired would not use a mouse because they can't see it, right? They can't see the cursor on their screen. Um, so... Uh, someone with uh, those sorts of disabilities would use keyboard combinations. Uh, so where you and I or, or most may know certain keyboard combinations like a, a print screen, um, it, there's hundreds of keyboard combinations. And it allows, if, if coded properly, allows someone to use only the keyboard to navigate a website. Um, and then uh, more understood would be someone with a a hearing disability or or someone who's deaf um, would need closed captioning um, or audio descriptions, some sort of description um, that would allow them to understand uh, what's being uh, heard or what's audible. So uh, as a for instance, if it's something that's maybe on your website, let's say like a a background music um, that's not integral to the site itself, but you would still have to have a a note in the code that there is background music playing. Uh, Something that is integral to your website, so let's say that it's a video, uh, it would have to have closed captioning 
on that video so that somebody that can't hear it would still be able to understand it. And then for people that are severely sight impaired or who are blind, um, and this is where most of the, the lawsuits stem from, um, they use what's called a screen reader. And it's, it's an amazing software that actually reads a website to, or uh, I'm sorry, that, that actually uh, allows them to hear what's on the website. So they can't see it, but they're able to then hear it. Um, and so what that would mean is uh, for basic text that's on a website, so text that can be copied and pasted into a different document, uh, it would actually read that. Uh, that's a basic one. But let's say that it's a picture and it has information in that, in that picture, actual text. Well, it's invisible to, to that screen reader unless you have it coded properly, if you have a proper tag on that picture. Um, and not all pictures actually have to be tagged. Um, that's, it's an interesting piece because most people think uh, when they start to understand website compliance that all pictures have to be tagged, but it's only integral pictures to the website. If it's just a decorative image, it does not need a tag on it. It doesn't mean anything and it literally is not there to somebody that can't see it. Um, but they don't need to see it. They don't need to know what that is. It's just for decoration. So when a company gets hit with a lawsuit claiming that a website is not accessible uh, under the Americans with Disabilities Act, like, like you received, what's the real issue? It's, it's someone who is disabled who is saying that they are not able to use or navigate uh, the particular website uh, like non-disabled individuals in the public can? That's correct, and that's what the Americans with Disabilities Act is all about, right? It's, it's equal access. So if they want to go onto a website, let's just say as a for instance in, in the business where I received my demand letter, it was a, a restaurant delivery service, so we delivered meals from homes and businesses to people, and which should be a great convenience, you know, obviously for everyone, but, you know, certainly for people with disabilities that have difficulty just getting out and about. Someone who's blind can't just jump into their car to pick up food. Um, but they were unable to place orders through that website. Um, so the, the issues um, really stem from them not being able to navigate the website um, using their different assistive devices. And so will this apply to every business that has a website, presumably? It applies to every business and every entity. So not only businesses, but all government entities also need to ensure that their websites are compliant. And there's even stricter guidelines for government entities. And we're starting to see the, the wave of lawsuits occurring uh, in the, the, the government space. Um, and of course, you know, also with businesses, we've seen a huge uptick in lawsuits. Oh, sure. Um, and, and so who usually brings you into the matter in your company as the outside expert? And, and when are you typically brought into these lawsuits? Outside counsel. Uh, ordinarily brings us in. So uh, a business or entity uh, that receives a lawsuit or demand letter, uh, they go to their outside counsel because internally, you know, just like I had mentioned, I had never heard of website compliance. Uh, most of these businesses, they've never heard of website compliance. They receive this, this legal notice and they need help. So even if they have a general counsel or they have a legal team internally, um, it's not anything that they can handle internally. So they go to outside counsel and uh, outside counsel then would come to us. So we have relationships with many of the largest law firms throughout the country. Um, and of course also you know, local firms as well because this doesn't only affect large businesses, uh, this also affects small mom and pop businesses. Uh, so outside counsel would come to us. Um, often we assist um, minimally on, on providing some guidance as to uh, past experiences that we've had, uh, maybe with uh, the, the 
firm that's actually filing the lawsuit so that we can uh, help and provide some guidance to the outside counsel. But most importantly, uh, we and our main role is auditing websites and providing reporting so that they're able to correct any issues that are on the website. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that in terms of remediation. Um, and I, I want to get into the process that you use uh, in a moment. But um, quickly on that point, are you typically brought in as a reaction to a lawsuit being filed, or uh, do you also get the call either from the company or from the outside counsel? Uh, hey, look, you know, we want to audit our website. We haven't gotten sued yet, um, but you know, let's take a look at it now. There are definitely businesses and government entities that are being proactive. Uh, most of them are being proactive because they know someone else that's been sued. So as a, for instance, uh, if a county is sued, uh, often they will send emails out to all of the cities within that county, uh, informing them and educating them as to what they're going through, um, and then recommending us and, and letting them know that they're working with ADA site compliance and, and that they should reach out to us and that there's steps that we can take to help them mitigate the chances of being sued. Um, anyone that's actually been sued, assuming that they uh, enter into a settlement agreement, uh, that looks a little different because you know then as part of the agreement they uh, from, from all of the settlement agreements that, that, you know, that I've been involved with, uh, they always need to have a company like ours involved, a third party that's auditing the website and, and helping them go through the remediation process. So if I gave you the following statement, 100% of the websites on the Internet in some respects are not compliant with the Americans with Disabilities Act, would that be a true statement or a false statement? I'd say you're very close. I, I, I don't like to say 100% on anything, yeah, but I, no, I would, I would to be extreme. <laughs> I would give you a 99.95%, and, uh, and, and I may be too liberal with that. It, it probably is closer to 100%. And it's certainly not because you know, people are not sensitive to the issues or, or you know, looking to cut corners necessarily. It's, uh, I, I suspect, like so many other employment law issues, they're just not educated um, on the particular requirements and you know in this issue you're dealing so much with technology so many people are just uh, it's not in their wheelhouse yeah that, that that's correct they're, they're just not aware of it for the most part and, and that's part of what we're working on is educating as many people as we can uh, you know that's not only of course to drive business and it's part of our sales efforts but we want people to be aware that that this is an issue that they need to take steps to uh, to, to mitigate the chances of being sued and, and of course, just importantly, uh, to do what's right uh, to ensure that, that everybody has access to their website. And so whenever you and your company are brought in, uh, let's talk about the process and, and the next steps. I, I like to keep this, as I said before, you know, as practical as, purpose, as, as possible. So when you are brought in, what is your process and what exactly are you looking for in terms of initial steps? We like to break it out into phases so that it's not overwhelming for our clients. And so the, the initial phase would be to add what's called an accessibility policy to the website. Uh, and that policy is something that people with disabilities, they know to look for an accessibility policy on a site if they get stuck. Uh, 
So if there's an area that they cannot navigate uh, due to the website not being accessible and compliant, uh, then there's alternate contact information in that accessibility policy, a phone number and or email address uh, so that they can get assistance. Uh, so that's, that's one piece of it. We also have a shield that we'd like to put on the website. Um, we want everybody to know that, that that company or entity is working with a legitimate provider uh, to assist them in their effort to make their website compliant. And then we go into the auditing phases. And, and all of this is essentially simultaneous. Uh, the auditing phases are we use technology to actually scan the code. Um, unfortunately, technology can only find about 30% of the errors uh, on a website. Uh, you need humans to audit a website in order to find the remainder. And it's, it's a bit of an issue in the industry that I'm in uh, because there are a lot of companies that only offer technological testing and auditing, uh, but they put themselves out there as if the website will be compliant, accessible, and usable, uh, but it will not be. Um, it's better than nothing, and it's a step, and I would never discourage anyone from taking those steps. Um, it, it does help, but it's not going to make the website fully compliant and accessible. Uh, so we do talk a lot. We do talk a lot about automation and technology and, and artificial intelligence. Um, so is what you're saying that while um, it's certainly a good thing to uh, have. Um, automated testing of the websites, you still do in this area need to have human testing, as I think you put it. Exactly. That, that's right. So um, as, a, as a, for instance, uh, the technology can find a tag on a photo, or for that matter, can recognize that there is no tag on the photo, so that the screen reader um, would be able to recognize what that picture is and or a button or, or other items on the site. Um, however, it, it cannot tell whether it's a proper tag. Um, so in other words, if there's a button that says place order, but the tag says something completely different, then the screen reader is only going to read what the human has entered if they've entered anything. Um, the, so software cannot pick up on that. That's where you need humans, uh, and this is just one example, but you need human auditors to go through and test every piece of every page of the website. And so they're testing flows, um, flows meaning that let's say that you want to place an order for an item, it would be from the beginning of select the items, select the number of items, maybe you're selecting other modifiers like a color or a size, um, and then to actually enter your information, so your, your address and your credit card info. If everything is not tagged properly the whole way through, then for somebody utilizing a screen reader, it's literally invisible, right? They can't see it, and it's not giving them any audible indication what's there or what their next steps are, then they're stuck. So, so in a form, let's say that the form doesn't have proper tags on it, where most can see that it says name, first name, last name, phone number, email address. If the tags aren't there and the proper tags are not there, it's not there, right? It's, it's, it's invisible to the person with the sight impairment. Um, so that, that's where many of the issues stem from. And so when you're talking about how you, you divide this into phases, so I have a company, uh, I'm looking to bring you in uh, as a consultant to uh, audit my website. 
Um, so the first thing is, I think you said before, one of the first things you're, you're providing some language that we can put um, as an initial matter onto the website itself. Um, you're going to presumably provide me with a proposal that's going to lay out the different phases and, and what uh, the audit will consist of, I assume? Sure. Yes, a proposal and a statement of work so that it's very clear exactly what we're going to be doing and what the interaction will be. And so I sign off on the proposal, I get it back to you, and so the first thing you're doing now, you're going to take a look at my website. And are you doing that in combination between human auditing and particular software that you use for this purpose? We would, of course, prefer that the clients do both. Um, some, because of financial restraints, uh, may choose to only select certain items. So maybe they only have the ability to do the technological auditing uh, right now, which is relatively inexpensive. Uh, the human expert auditing does get expensive. There, there's a cost to it. Uh, we use experts in the field um, and it does take many, many hours. You know, it, it can take hundreds, if not thousands of hours for them to actually audit a website, depending on how many pages they're auditing. Uh, so the, the process can be labor intensive. And from there, what we do on, on both sides, we then provide a report um, and usually our technical lead will work with the, the company or entity's technical lead, uh, provide them with a report that gives them every line of code where there's an error and it, it tells them why it's an error um, and also tells them how to correct it along with a, a screenshot of exactly where the error is. It's highlighted on the screenshot. Um, so it's very user friendly, the reporting. Um, it can at first seem overwhelming uh, because in most instances, there's thousands of errors on websites. So when you get this report and it can be hundreds of pages, uh, it seems overwhelming. But with our teams working together, uh, it's, it's very easy to understand you know, as we walk them through it. And, and we've never had any instance where someone sort of th has thrown their hands up and said, this is just too much, it's overwhelming. <laughs> <laughs> and who are you typically working with? Are you working with the IT folks on the company side, the, the C-suite management, or a combination of both? It's a combination. So usually to get through the proposal and get that signed off, it's, uh, it'll be a general counsel or deputy general counsel uh, or, or the C-suite. Um, and then it's often handed off to the, the team that actually codes the website. Um, and I'd say it's 50-50. Uh, 50% would be in-house, 50% they're actually using a development team that's, that's outsourced. Um, and, and in either case, you know, we're involved with whomever they want us to, to work with. Um, and, and this is a process, there's a great relationship that's built uh, amongst the teams and, and it's an ongoing process. So, you know, this is never fixed. So e even when we feel like, you know, it's, it's done, it's not done. Uh, reason being is that the uh, WCAG Web Content Accessibility Guidelines uh, are, are forever changing. Um, they're actually uh, soon going to be coming out with uh, a, a, new, uh, a new level of the guidelines. Uh, so when that occurs, we have to continue to interact with all of our clients to say, okay, well, here's what's happened and here's what we now need to go back in and look for and provide you reporting around. Um, also, you know, as, as websites are updated and, you know, just about every business is consistently working on their website, uh, it's somewhat easy to, to break it. Um, and we do 
go through the process of, of trying to educate their team and build a level of expertise. But, you know, in reality, you know, this is not what they do full time. We're the experts and they lean on us to continually update them on what needs to be done with their websites. And, and that answer actually anticipated uh, the next question I wanted to ask, and that is, what is the source of the standards against which you are looking at these websites for compliance? So it's a really interesting piece of, of, of all of this, which is the Department of Justice has not provided guidelines to say, here's exactly what it means for your website to be compliant. Uh, and as an example, if you look at building code, they, they make it very clear. The Americans with Disabilities Act has guidelines to say if you're building a, a public entity, um, then you need to do certain things. So your door jams need to be a certain width, or maybe you need to have an elevator, or you need to have a ramp that's a certain width, and it has rails, and it's at a certain incline. Um, and it's easy to know whether you're complying or not complying with the standards. That, that's exactly right. But in this instance, the Department of Justice has not provided that. Um, However, they have backed these lawsuits and they've made it very, very clear that all websites have to be compliant. Uh, and, and now it's confusion, right? How does outside counsel or, or the internal team know what does that mean? How, how do we provide any guidance around this? Um, and it's where we come in. Uh, we are experts at knowing what the international standards are, um, even though they're not the U.S. standards because there really aren't any. Um, the, the the standard that most are working by are the WCAG standards, again, the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines. And those there's a team, um, it's a volunteer team of experts uh, that continually update those, and that's what we test from. Uh, and there's different levels. Right now it's A and AA. Um, it's AAA that, that looks like it, it may come out over, uh, likely in, in 2018. Um, and, uh, and, and we stay on top of all that to ensure that our clients are staying compliant. When dealing with uh, companies uh, in terms of uh, either the audit piece of this or when they're responding to litigation, um, do you deal at all with the insurance component of this? Is, is this something that companies are typically insured for when it comes to website uh, accessibility? Some, some yes and some no, right? So it, 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 we have found that some have this in their policy. Um, none have been covered 100%. Uh, but pieces have been covered. So uh, our auditing may not be, but our consulting may be. Uh, so, you know, we may be able to break out consulting hours from the proposal and say, here's exactly what we're doing on the consulting side um, outside of the auditing and that they do get reimbursed on, on that piece. Well, this is, uh, this is really great, uh, Scott. I really appreciate uh, you taking some time. Um, without us sounding too, you know, chicken little, the sky is falling, um, is there something that uh, any of our listeners, um, any of their companies should be doing right now, presumably before they get hit with a lawsuit on this website accessibility issue? I would suggest that they educate themselves. Uh, there, there's a lot of government resources out there. Uh, there's websites. My company, of course, has a website and it provides a lot of information that allows them to easily understand what it all means and, and what they need to do. And absolutely speak with a consultant. Uh, a, a lot of the issues that I find um, when businesses are getting sued and getting sued multiple times, it's when they're trying to handle this task internally or use their development team to handle it, and they're not experts at website compliance. Um, I always, you know, sort of 
half jokingly say, you know, if you're sued, there's resources online that you can utilize that why don't you just handle the own, your own defense of that lawsuit? And they would never think of doing that. They're, they're not legal experts. It's, it's not in their wheelhouse. Well, likewise, website compliance is very complex. There's many, many success criteria. There's a lot to it. And they need to use an outside consulting firm to, to handle that piece of the business for them. Sure, and, and we have certainly, we being Cozen O'Connor, have certainly uh, had the pleasure of working with you before as well, and um, that's how I got to know you and um, appreciate your good work as well. Um, what, so give us the name of your company and uh, your web address, which, which I'm assuming is fully compliant. Ah, yes, it is. Uh, ADA Site Compliance is the name of the business, and the website is adasitecompliance.com. That's terrific. Well, Scott Trachtenberg, thank you so much uh, for taking some time out and speaking with us uh, about what really is a, uh, a hot trend out there. It's been my pleasure. Well, that was great. Scott was terrific. Um, I was very happy to have him on, and I hope you learned something and got something uh, useful out of that discussion. That is all the time we have for today's episode. Um, I do hope you have a terrific holiday weekend coming up. Relax a little bit. Um, spend some time with the people that you love the most, and, uh, and just smile. Well, that was probably one of the corniest things I've ever said, but I did mean it. In any event, thank you so much for listening. As always, we will be having part two of our special two-part series on marijuana implications for employers coming up in a couple of weeks. But until the next episode, thanks again, and I hope all of your labor is productive.